I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right. Well, welcome to the, the first podcast. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Elon Jacobson. I'm the founding partner and CEO of Firepower Capital. You'll get a little more of my story over the next, who knows how long, couple hours. And I couldn't kick this off any other way than to have uh, the, the man sitting beside me. And I'm going to introduce him. But before I introduce him, you know, really what I want to try and accomplish in these podcasts is just have a, a real authentic view from people that you may respect about how they've built their businesses, how they view life, get to know them outside of just their CEO role and understand the person that they are. I think that once you're able to see the people behind the businesses, it becomes clearer, and at least it does to me, you know, why certain people are successful and others aren't. So with that, I want to introduce my guest and my partner in uh, my business and uh, his business uh, called Battle. Battle stands for Backyard Axe Throwing League. Uh, this man to my left is the, the founder, the creator, the CEO, the catalyst to what is now known as uh, the sport of urban axe throwing. And uh, I think that once you hear his story, uh, it, it really personifies the entrepreneurial spirit and the entrepreneurial journey. So Matt Wilson, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, man. It's uh, pretty cool. Cool to be sitting here with you. Uh, I'm excited to to talk with you in a, in a little bit of a different setting than our daily uh, hustle and grind, you know? Yeah. And, and less beers than, 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 than usual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Less beers than usual. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. Still my, only 2 p.m. So. That, that, that is true. You know, that is true. Friday night. You never know. We'll make up for it later. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> so Matt, not only is is my business partner, but one of my closest friends. And Matt, let's just start at the beginning. I'm always, and you know, I always, uh, you know, love hearing your story. As many times as I've heard it, I still love it. You know, maybe just talk even before your, you know, your entrepreneurial journey started. Love to hear a little more about your background and kind of where you came from and who you are uh, and some of the things that, that landed up shaping you before that journey started. I mean, if we're really going back, I, I grew up in Scarborough, you know, a suburban suburban uh, neighborhood outside of Toronto. Bit of a rough and tumble area, has a bit of a uh, reputation, which I can say it probably deserves, but I, I certainly loved uh, growing up there. You know, last of five kids. As I tell people, you know, I've my folks had three sons. My third brother is uh, mentally and physically handicapped, and so they spent a lot of years putting in 24-hour care with him. And then, you know, nine years after he was born, when he's nine years old, they decided they wanted to try for another child and have a girl. And they they rolled the dice and and got my sister. And then, uh, you know, I was the uh, I was the accident at the end. So I'm glad the accident happened. Yeah, man. Me too. Me too. <laughs> and I don't know if other if some people feel like accidents are a good thing or a bad thing. I I love it. I think it's I think it's great. I'm happy that that I, you know I feel super fortunate for the family that I've got and uh, and wouldn't have it any other way. And it kind of fits in a little bit with the with the black sheep uh, narrative that ended up kind of, kind so, of happening so, so, there. Let's so, talk a little more about that black sheep yeah. narrative. So, you know, I was born into a Mormon family up here in Toronto. 
uh, Mormon, not Mennonite, and no multiple wives for those that automatically go that way. That's yeah. not a that's not a thing in the Mormon Church. But uh, grow up, you know, in a great family, going to church every week. You know, good morals instilled. I think at, at a young age, you know, do be good to people. Generally speaking, was is is the mantra. You know, as I think is the core mantra for most religion, and 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 one that I wish all religion could stick strictly to a little more. But yeah, somewhere in my teenage years, my early teen years, I I realized that it wasn't really for me and that uh, didn't want to follow that path. So, And do you think that rebellious kind of streak in you was just like inherent in your DNA or were, or were there events that kind of led to that? Because the reason I ask is this podcast is called An Entrepreneur's DNA for a reason. Right. Uh, you know, my background prior to you know getting into finance was actually in genetics. I've always been obsessed, as we've had numerous conversations about nature versus nurture, which I'm sure we'll have more later on. Yeah. And I think we actually differ to some degree on what we believe plays more of a role, which we can have a conversation uh, sure. a little later on. But I do find that people that are disruptors and you know entrepreneurial sometimes do have that kind of rebellious streak. You know me, I, I, I struggle to take too much credit for things. I, I think I certainly do have a rebellious streak, have always had a rebellious streak. I think the thing that amplified that was being the fifth child in a scenario where so much care was also needed for my other brother. The bottom line was when I came around, I sure I had a rebellious streak, but also like my parents were tired, mm-hmm. you know, so the effort which with they tried to curb that rebellious streak was limited, you know? So I did what I wanted a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I remember, you know, back, uh, you know, to some, some arguments with my parents, you know, getting grounded and just blatantly disregarding that, you know? Like, you're, you're grounded for a week. You sure, sure, whatever you say, you know, lights off, they go to bed, I'm, I'm out of town, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I guess it was, I guess it was always there. And I think uh, being able to push and get away with certain things over the years, I just further amplified it. I was like, oh, I can push this boundary and I can, you know, get away with it. And I certainly took that throughout my academic career as well. I was always kind of able to manipulate the system a little bit. And so, and, so, so, so you landed up kind of leaving the Mormon church. Yeah. And then you had a whole bunch of crazy years, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, absolutely. Just speak, you know, because I think that, you know, the reason I, I'm, I'm pressing on this in particular is because I think that people love to hear like, just the pure romantic story of, you know, the perfect kind of trajectory from, you know, high school to university and getting great grades and then the MBA and then you land up in business and you you start your own thing. But <laughs> you know what? The reality is all journeys are different. Yeah. And, you know, I, I again, I go back, I love your story because, you know, you have life experience that probably some other people don't have. Sure, I think I think you're right. You know, everybody's everybody's path is different, and uh, and I certainly didn't go down that route of, you know, of higher you, education. I think you've told me before that you don't even know if you finished high school. I I'm still missing an English credit. <laughs> okay, yeah. I do know that. Well, <laughs> do you, know well that your I... English seems fine to me. I'm just, <laughs> just between that. you and me. <laughs> yeah, English media. I I just didn't pass that one on that last year, uh, and the reason was because I was working. I was getting decided that I wanted to get out of the church in my early teens. At 18 years old, I hit the point where it was okay with my parents to make that decision. They didn't love the decision, but mm-hmm. I was 18 years old. I was able to to say, you know what, I'm not going to go to church anymore, and that you know was certainly a shift in my in my life. Around that same time, I was like struggling with being in high school with my sister, who was very much by the book, and so. And what was the age difference there? T- uh, two years, and so I transferred to an art school halfway through high school, specifically to get away from her, uh, so that I could live the, the lifestyle that I wanted to without having to worry about coming home to some level of wrath because my sister decided to tell my folks all about it. Yeah. 
So I went to an art school. That was a great experience. Ended up getting into theater. This was a musical theater program at, at the school I went to. I think when, if people just saw you on the street, they might not assume that your background was musical theater. <laughs> yeah, man, I was a triple threat. Yeah, for <laughs> there sure. You go. <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, my second brother, I grew up with him doing sketch comedy and improv comedy throughout my entire youth. So I always had an appreciation for performance. He was actually, for many years, taught conservatory uh, improv classes at Second City, uh, one of their top teachers for years. Um, he, he was a big influence for me growing up. So I actually performed my first sketch on stage with him when I was eight years old at the Rivoli wow. on Queen Street. Where, That's a story I don't know. Where he used me as kind of uh, a physical prop of sorts to get some good laughs. But uh, but so I, so that was like in me at a young age. And and uh, and he was he was great growing up uh, at, at exposing us to some cool environments at, at performing at Second City and other and other stages. Around and you, town. you landed up spending quite a bit of time in Second City. Yeah, yeah, I did. It kind of came full circle yeah. in my in my early twenties. So. So yeah, so when I was finishing up those high school years, I was in this theater program. I needed one more English credit. So I went back and did a semester of theater again with that one English credit. Loved the theater part, didn't care about the English credit, but also at that point was working full-time. I was working Swiss Chalet, split shifts, and overnights at Walmart at the same time. So I was doing like 11 p.m. till 7 a.m. at Walmart, go home, sleep for three hours, go to Swiss Chalet at noon till three o'clock, and then go home and come back and go six to nine at Swiss Chalet and then go home, usually straight to, to Walmart, pick up a couple of buddies on the way, one of which is Trev, who's actually one of my GMs still. I'd pick him up on the way and we'd go do Walmart. So that was a lot of my days were that. So I was missing a lot of school for that stuff already. And I I just realized that I like liked making money and I was pretty good at just like working. I succeeded at all of those roles. I, I found that like I could apply myself as much or as little as I wanted to, to mm -hmm. sort of get where I wanted to get. And why those. do you think like even, you know, the Swiss Chalet, the, the, the Walmart, like what was it about you succeeding in those roles? Like what did you innately have that maybe others didn't? Like I know you have the work ethic. Yeah, I think I pick things up fairly quickly and, and I know how to get along with people. I've always mm -hmm. been good at getting along with people. I'm a very codependent person. Like I hate doing things by myself. I, you know that I love whatever the task is, grabbing a friend and either doing a horrible task and just getting it done together. And at the end being like, we fucking did that horrible thing, man. Like nice work or taking a friend and going to share that great experience, you know? So, so uh, I don't do well going solo. So I've always been able to kind of bring people together to, to do things. And that certainly is a benefit in the workforce, right? And like, I think that that foreshadows really and we'll, we're going to dive deep into the sport of axe throwing and that journey but it definitely foreshadows you know the whole reason that we speak about of why this business has succeeded is is that emphasis of you know using the axe as a tool to build community and you know i, mm -hmm. I know that you're you know when, when you talk about you know being a social being and and it, like being codependent as you call it you know it really does boil down to wanting a, a you know deep roots in in a, in a community that matters Absolutely. Right. And I do think for me there, you know, when I reflect on it now, certainly not realizing it throughout the years, but as much as I love my family and they're very supportive and we have a great relationship, you know, now and, and figured that out in the, in my twenties, when I did leave the church, there was an element of alienation from my own family in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so my friends became that other family. And then those groups of friends over the years through different you know, circumstances sort of evolved. So I've done a little bit of like bouncing around, if you will, to like different groups of people and friends. So I've got several social groups from those transitions, you know, from one high school to another high school. I got a social group from one high school, then I moved to this other, made another social group there, you know, got into theater programs, became another social, like, and to me, those were all 
extensions of family. I built really strong bonds with with groups of people in those areas. And so I know how much that's meant to me. And so for the origins of axe throwing was me trying to do that again with the people that I wanted to spend time with and give us a reason, like a scheduled thing to spend time together each week and axe throwing became that thing. Let's bridge that gap from, you know, Swiss Chalet, Walmart, then jumping into Second City for Mm -hmm. a number of years. Help me get to that fateful cottage day, you know, that that kind of started this crazy uh, sport. Yeah, I'll try and keep it short then. So yeah, the Swiss Chalet, Walmart stuff for my final years of high school. And then uh, and then I, I ended up getting a job at a place called North Beach Volleyball. It's an indoor beach volleyball club. So sand in a warehouse. And that was an entrepreneurial venture by a guy named Roland McRae. And so I ended up being his right hand, got a great exposure to an entrepreneurial mindset, um, was very empowered at, at you know 19 years old to manage his bar and run his facility and run those leagues. I did that for five years and then needed a change. And a friend called me and said, hey, they're doing auditions at Second City for this comedy show. You should come. Uh, it was one of one of, one of my uh, friends from theater school, mm-hmm. from the theater high school, and so I went down and auditioned and got in and and started working in a show there. I was basically running that entire beach facility, indoor beach facility. Passed it on to the next person in line and and moved on to that Second City gig, and then worked there for five years. Ended up working my way through the entire cast, like work, played almost every male role there was. And then by the end of that, I was playing the lead. I was the trainer of new staff, and I was the blocking captain for training people and where to be at certain points of the of the show and like i basically was doing all of the leadership positions that there were beyond being in the show by the time that show closed and that show ended up running for 14 years i was part of the last five years of that show and it wasn't the main stage of second city but it was another show that was running in that building so i got additional exposure to that side of things you know performance and uh and entertainment as you're talking i'm, I'm picking up the building blocks of what you know turned you into you yeah. and you know leadership is as clear as day i mean i know you and i even just hearing that story how important was being a leader within that cast for you in kind of refining you know what it meant to be a leader and how to influence people in a positive way yeah i think both the north beach volleyball and then experience and then transitioning into that second city experience were both hugely impactful. I would say that in the in the moment, I never viewed it as m- me mm-hmm. being a leader. Because it's natural. That's, it was it was me like rallying people together to do a yeah. thing. It was me going like, I just want, I want to do this with people. But the best leaders are authentic, right? Like, I, I, you know, we spoke about this actually last night. And, and what we were saying was like, it's funny to us that people put the title of leader on themselves because ultimately the power is in the follower. You know, yeah. you're only a leader if someone chooses to follow sure. you. And you know that I don't necessarily feel very comfortable being directly. But that was the Mormon guilt. Called that. <laughs> Mormon guilt is real. There's no <laughs> doubt. Uh, yeah, this doesn't let me take credit for something. Sometimes I suppose that's true. But uh, but for me, it was always it's always been about the group. Always been about the group, and it still is. It's about doing it together, unifying people mm-hmm. to do something exciting and fun, and and empowering us all to like achieve something but also having the influence to like have the vision and get people to buy into your vision you may not view it through that lens but if you get if you dissect you know from afar when you're not in it that's exactly what's happening right and 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 you know you 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 may not put a label on it but if we're going to run a case study you know that's what it is labeled as it's yeah it's it really is that stereotypical leadership you know and how to do it right and 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 you view it through the lens of getting people to do something that's a you know a common goal and doing it together 
yeah, that's what good leaders do as opposed yeah. to driving it down their throats right. and do right. it because I have authority over you. Right. That, I think I think that's right. I think that's something I've always tried to live by in any position of leadership, whether through employment or, or otherwise, is it's always about uh, treating people the right way. Yeah. If you're treating people the right way and working together towards a common goal, then you're leading. Yeah. So Second City ends. Second City ends. Yeah. I go back into bars, the bar life. Intermittently, like North Beach Volleyball had a bar. I got there because of bartending. Switch to LA, bar. So there's hospitality through that. I dove, dove back into the bar world, started working at various restaurants around Toronto, and then landed a couple of great gigs, two great spots, the Brass Taps, which is a local pub in Little Italy, and then Ted's Collision, which was like a rock and roll dive bar that was across the street from my house in Little Italy as well. I worked at both of those spots. Fantastic owners, small team, very tight-knit group, very family, you know, vibe, very, mm-hmm. like, got each other's back type of thing. We all knew each other very well as friends outside of work. And that's when axe throwing started coming together uh, in the backyard. So let's, house. let's yeah. you know, you're, you're a bartender and you go to meet some buddies at a cottage. Okay? Yeah. So, so talk about that day. I mean, well, you know, talk about fate. Right. And, 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 and we could talk about if, if we want to veer in, you know, fate versus having complete control of, of your destiny. I'll use the word fate because it was a fateful day that landed up, you know, us sitting here and talking about sure. it. Yeah. So, you know, I made really, really great friends when while working at Second City. Very fortunate for the for all the people that have in my life. But the, but there was a great group there. And when Second City ended, lost some touch with them, obviously not spending you know multiple days a week in a show together the relationship shifts a little bit bartending you know making other friends other strong relationships but looking to kind of reunite with a couple of those guys from that second city day my friend charles ketchabaugh who he affectionately referred to as chucky sausage he gave me a call i'm sure there's a story behind that i'm sure there is and <laughs> uh and he said hey look listen why don't we you know i haven't seen you in a while let's catch up let's head, head up to my folks uh, cottage up at turkey point you know and i've invited uh, our other really good friend niche to come along uh, with us. So the three of us went up to Charles's cottage and and that's where, you know, it's a rainy weekend in, in October in 2006 and we're sitting around a fire with ponchos, you know, rain ponchos on and drinking beers and Niche pulls out a hatchet and out of nowhere and just turns and throws it 20 feet and sticks it into a tree. And we're just like, what the, like, but oh, that- you, Oh, you could swear. But no that, problem. <laughs> that was Niche. Niche was a, a was a pretty special person, man. He was, he was an enigmatic personality, all kinds of energy, absolutely hilarious. Uh, six foot four, 240 pound Armenian beast. Like just straight up, if like he embodies Conan the Barbarian in every way so, 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 while it, still managing it, so to succeed in modern fit. day society. Yeah, he's the guy that we were having a beer and out of nowhere, an ax goes flying through him. the air and it sticks in a tree. There yeah, yeah. Okay. he's that guy. And so that happens. And sure enough, we're like, what the fuck? And let me try, you know, was yeah. the very next thing out of our mouth. So then that's what we did, you know, all weekend long. We just hung out, crushed beers, you know, may or may not have had some mushrooms involved in there somewhere <laughs> along the way. And it typical Canadian cottage adventure. Yeah. Maybe not typical for everyone, but certainly for some. And and probably, probably just... more than more than would admit it. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. I lo- I love where that uh, acceptance is at in the world these days anyway. It's a fantastic thing to experience uh expanding your mind with that stuff under the right circumstances. But we certainly threw an axe at a tree for almost all of our social time around the fire. We were just it just became like it wasn't even the focus point. We were just talking and throwing and and catching up, you know? And so I came back to my my apartment, which was the main floor of a house that we were renting, me and a couple of buddies. 
And my one of my best friends, Mark Coscarella, lived with me at the time. And I was like, I came back and I was like, dude, you got to try throwing an axe. It is awesome. And he was just like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, probably, probably thought you were a psychopath. Kind of shrugged it off. Well, yeah. we lived together, so he okay. knew. So, so he, knew, he knew you were a psychopath. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, knew, he knew who I was. He knows, <laughs> him and I also have known each other since high school. So yeah. he knows me and, 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 knows and, very well. And it's probably not surprising. I mean, I know that, you know, you, you've told me that you were always the guy who came up with some random game yeah. and, you know, made it fun and you'd do it for hours. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of my buddies, we had a, his bachelor party at a cottage and over the course of a an afternoon i came up with like the wet towel olympics where it was like red solo cups and a wrung out wet towel trying to snap different things like we had a speed challenge where somebody's just whipping solo cups in the air and you got to tag them out with the towel we did like all kinds of different olympic style events for his bachelor party that just came out of nowhere because we're just so is that the next business idea yeah yeah that's one of them um (laughs) you know i i certainly came up like we used to pub olympics at at the bars when it was slow with regulars where we were we would literally throw coasters, try and toss them across the whole distance of the restaurant to land them on different tables and places for different point values, just coming up with rules and yeah. dumb games to sort of kill time and and compete again in, in some way, right? So want to go back, and I'm going to stop you once in a while and say, like, so I, I, I saw, you know, that natural rebelliousness, that natural kind of leadership skill, the clear kind of creativity. So to sure. me, those are the three building blocks, and I know how uncomfortable that makes you, <laughs> but I don't give a shit. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, one of the, one of the things I want to try and accomplish in these podcasts is, is give others the tools that they can use to be introspective in themselves to find what those building blocks are of them. And it's through those stories and through looking back at your life and seeing where you naturally succeeded and paying closer attention to that and finding that building block where, you know, you'll start to become more self-aware aware and understand what you may be good at, what you what you may be bad at, because a huge component of what right. I believe leads to success is that self-awareness, is really understanding what you're good at and being super comfortable with all the things that you're not. Because right. I think that that's a, that's a huge strength Absolutely. In, in, you know, not having to feel like you have to be good at everything. Man, one person cannot do everything. Yeah. You cannot do it alone. Yeah. And so absolutely, I agree, man, Un- knowing what you're not good at and bringing the people surrounding yourself with the people that can do those things and 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 let you do the thing that you're good at is great. You know, some yeah. people say you should coach and work on the the weaknesses. I don't know about that. You know, I like, completely like nurture, agree with you. nurture the strength. I mean, be aware of the weakness so that you yeah. don't make it worse and you mm-hmm. don't fuck up by yeah. trying to apply it in a place where it doesn't doesn't fit. But do what you're good at. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, when, when I hear someone you know ask like what are your three weaknesses in a job interview i'm like who the fuck cares i can't sing i can't dance i can't paint but you're hiring me to be in finance so who like what does that even mean yeah you know it's just silliness to me i find that in a question like that i think because i'm guilty of of using that question but i'm looking for self-awareness yeah that's fair you know that's fair can a person even acknowledge that they have a weakness you know where's their head at right good point that's what i typically am looking for out of Mm. that and and it's it's about okay great you know understand that that's not your strength and hopefully the next thing they say is you know i'll surround myself with the people that that can do those things and compliment me so we, we now have the axe and the friend who thinks you're a psycho (laughs) <laughs> how, 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 how do how do we land up starting batl yeah, yeah so you know the rebellious thing relates like I, i'm certainly a stubborn individual and like i said no, I, I don't say <laughs> i like to uh when i think something is great i i'm pretty passionate about like making sure that other people around me understand how great it is yeah so when mark was kind of like yeah i was like no man you don't understand so luckily like 
I guess, luckily, the next door to us was our landlord and he was doing construction, currently renovating. And I looked out on the front lawn and there was a pile of like scrap wood from like whatever demo he was doing. And I didn't even have a drill or screws. I'd had duct tape and I grabbed that wood and I duct taped it together and leaned it up against the wall in the backyard and went around the corner to like a tiny hardware store and found an ax. You would have thought if I was smart, I would have bought a drill and screws at the time. But I think I was also pretty broke. So <laughs> it was a $5 yeah. hatchet was about as much as we were getting out of that. And it came back and went, no, man, come into the backyard, try this thing. Where did the like the one, three, five idea come from? Like, like, because like, like now everyone knows kind of the rules of axe throwing and there's, there's a particular scoring system. Was that just pure like luck? Like, was it was yeah. it thought about like did like how much thought went into it? I had three colors of Sharpies. That's hilarious. So there was three... Rings. Rings. Amazing. That's what I already had at the house. Amazing. Blue, red, and black. That was it. Couldn't find the green one because it comes in a set, the green one. Think about how much how, how, how much would have changed if, right? you, if you would <laughs> have found the green, the green one, one. At the time. And yeah. lo and behold, we ended up with a green piece of the target anyway. Yeah. So, uh, But literally, that was it. I mean, when we first started throwing in the backyard, we had a can of spray paint. We just spray painted stuff on that scrap wood. But literally, the next day... Uh, you know, we went and bought some more tools together as it, as me and my roommates, and went, okay, well, let's make this a little bit better. And so, so and they then, liked it that first time. Oh yeah, as soon as as soon as he threw it, and and this is true still, I feel f- for every single person that comes through the door, a switch flips when you sink an axe, like mm-hmm. it just does. It sinks and it goes, it makes that sound, and it and you get to see it. There's a there's a split second of like beautiful motion when it leaves your hand, and it's spinning this weighted tool is spinning through the air and it thunk, and you just go like oh yeah like there's a satisfying yeah like that was compo- good yeah. you know and that's exactly what happened he yeah. threw one and was like as soon as he stuck one was like i gotta do that again yeah and then it's three days later and we've barely slept because we've just been like waking up and going and improving the target and trying to yeah. find another axe and, and see and, and, and i know like even at this point like you're loving what you're doing but a business is the furthest thing from your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. This is like this is like spare time when I'm not at work and I'm working yeah. five days a week, six days a week at these two other bars. Right? So let's so, go from 2006 to like when it actually becomes a thing. Yeah. So, you know, after a little bit of that with Mark and, uh, and my other roommates, uh, I reached out to a bunch of friends and was like, you know what, man, I'm going to do this league. I had the experience running the leagues at the volleyball joint. So I was like, I'm going to do a league. I called about 30, 40 friends, managed to get my two roommates one of their girlfriends and myself as four people. And then we managed to get like another eight people to come. I put this league together and it was kind of a disaster. I tried to like schedule every match, like 10 minute intervals and all this. And as soon as somebody wasn't around or taking a piss or whatever, everything got fucked up. I couldn't help coach anybody. I didn't know how to coach someone well at that time. So half the guys just couldn't figure it out and were absolutely like losing their mind frustrated. And so we finished. You know, it was fine. It was fun. Niche was a part of it. He kicked everyone's ass pretty much because he was the the resident pro. And that first season ended and I wasn't really going to do it again. And then I got a call from my buddy uh, Diamond and he was like, hey, man, he wasn't in the first season. He was like, hey, man, are you gonna, when are you going to do that thing again? I was like, I wasn't going to, you know, we did it and it was good. It was OK. Like we had a good time. But he was like, no, you should. I got I'm in. I got a buddy that I want to bring. And so I pulled the group that was in the original 12. A bunch of them weren't in. And Diamond and Yari became part of it, and we became a group of eight and revised. So you, so you the actually rules. went backwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The first first season to second season 
we went down in size. Okay. And we were eight people. We refined how we were scheduling things. We got a little more relaxed and just said, everybody show up at seven. We'll play matches with whoever's there on time. If you're going to be late, let me know. But if you're not going to show up every week, then don't fucking come, mm-hmm. right? We're very prideful on that. Like, if you're committing to this, be it's here. Too, yeah. Don't let these guys down by not showing up. So that was really the building blocks there. We figured out how to make the league run smoothly and, and refine the rules to be exciting. And and hence, you know, battle stands for Backyard Axe yeah, League. Yeah, we spray painted it on the wall with that same black can of spray paint on opening night of that 12-person league that very first season. That inspired the cops to show up and strip search us all and take all of our tattoos down and claim that we were a gang. But we managed to talk our way out of that and and convince them that we were just weirdos who and, like throw and, axes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they told us that we could never do it. Never, you're never going to be able to do this. And we sat there as they're profiling each of us and taking all our tattoos down and whatever. And we're going. But what what do we have to do to make this okay? Like our landlord knows. Like what we're on private property. What's the problem? And they're like, Well, you're a gang. You have got a name, and there's a group of you doing a thing together. Not okay. We grilled the guy for about an hour as he's taken all of our profiles until he finally goes, you'd, you'd have to enclose the space, all right? You'd have to just practically enclose the space to make it okay. And we're like, okay. And so the next week, we hung tarps from the roof of the house across to the roof of the restaurant where the, that was at the back of our backyard, this concrete wall of a, exterior of a restaurant, and we enclosed it. And so they came by and poked their head around, and they were like, it was enough for them to go, all right, these guys weren't just drunk and being idiots. These mm-hmm. guys actually- Take do this have, seriously. Or, they're actually committed to doing something here, and they were like, all right good keep it like that so you're not their their thing was we don't want an axe going over the fence into your neighbor's yard yeah like, all right fine so we solved that but anyway i'm getting kind of stuck on those early 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 years but over the next four years we slowly grew in the backyard up till 2010 by the time we hit 2010 we had two targets in our yard we'd taken over our landlord's yard next door and put up two more targets so we had four targets we had 30 people throwing on monday night another 30 people throwing on tuesday night and we had about 20 to 40 people showing up every night of the week that we were throwing to watch. So, so, so this had, is from 2006, now you're 2010. Do you now view this as a business or still not? At this point, we're taking very small, I'm taking very small donations from people to pay for the wood. So, was, so you're I still think, not really viewing it as a business? it was 25 bucks a person Got it. to pay for the wood and, the, and, and whatever other stuff we were doing. Not viewing it as a business at all. Um, but we hit a point where the cops are coming by every week for a noise complaint. They're being super cool about it, but we've certainly outgrown the backyard yeah, there's, people, there's people on stairs yeah. like watching there's a fire escape on, our, on the back of our house that's full of people there's a rooftop patio for our third floor you know other tenants in the building that's full of people the roof where the targets were mounted the targets are mounted on this concrete wall that was the exterior of a restaurant the roof of that was a patio for apartments above that restaurant that's full of people you know, we got floodlights mounted on the house now, like construction lights, you know, the, the yellow guys on the hinge. And we got those shining on the wall. This it, is was, so, it was like basketball. I was going to say, the this movie is basketball, so basketball. It was exactly that, right? <laughs> yeah. Like when the, that shot of them with bleachers in their front lawn yeah. while they're playing in the driveway. It was, it was totally that. And it was a really special time. It was super cool. But, you know, after a certain amount of weeks in a row, a few neighbors deciding they hated us and calling in all the time about it, the cops kind of came by and were like, look, this guy's never going to stop calling. Maybe it's time to move on. And I was like, yeah, okay, you're right, you know. And then I went on a Craigslist, found a warehouse, went over and met the landlord. He knew what I was up to and was like, look, I think it's fine what you're doing. I want you to keep it in your unit. Don't call me. Don't call me. If you have a problem, fix it yourself. And I was like, perfect. That works great. And he was like, I don't care if you live here or whatever, just you do you. Don't bother the other tenants. No problem. I can do that. So I took my mattress, threw it in the corner of that warehouse, put my boxes of my stuff around that mattress and moved in. 
And lived there for five years. Five years. First six months, no running water. No running water. No. We put in four targets and I had to do everything in the space. You know, my, the, my landlord was supposed to give me a drain access on a certain side of the unit. So the unit was a big square, but on the left-hand side was this giant metal mezzanine. So we couldn't put targets on that side because it meant with that mezzanine, it blocked that space. So targets had to be on the right side. I was supposed to have water access on the side where the mezzanine was because that's where we needed to build the washroom. And even that, my landlord gave me the access on the wrong side. So even when I got in there, I couldn't build the washroom. I had to build on the other side of the, of the unit. So I had to dig a trench through 14 inches of concrete across 28 feet across the unit to run plumbing to get to the washroom. So thank goodness Diamond, my friend there, was a beast of a man and was, and was willing to help out. But we broke three concrete saws trying to cut through that stuff. And it rented a jackhammer and and he sledged out a bunch of it. And we dug that trench and started slowly building that washroom while I lived in that mattress and would take bird baths in the public washroom, lay a towel out on the floor and fucking do the old sprinkle. Well, why were you doing this? I mean, like what led you to like have this passion? I mean, you didn't view it as a business. This was like, you're still working the bars yeah. and you know, you're, you're making all these sacrifices to like throw axes. And it wasn't a sacrifice. It was fucking awesome. It was awesome. You know, that backyard was a thing. It was like a real significant part of our lives. You know, we built this really incredible community. So you people. see, you really wanted to hold on to that community. Yeah, man, I mean, there was it, no way. I, yeah. Like, I, we all knew, like, I can't live without this. Mm -hmm. That was it. It was like, there was no other choice. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a choice. I was losing my mind trying to find a place. I was like, we were throwing seasonally in the backyard, obviously. We weren't throwing through all of winter. We would throw mm -hmm. from like March until October, November. So fourth building block, finding something that you're truly passionate about. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, this wasn't this wasn't a business. It wasn't a, this wasn't a job. I mean, it turned into one. And we're going to talk about that journey. Yeah. I, I hear people talk a lot about, you know, if you find something you love, you know, you'll be successful if you put your mind to it. And, and I, I, it's true. The problem is it doesn't actually explain why. And, you know, the, the, the verbiage I use to explain it is you really can't outwork passion. Right. I mean, if, if someone's yeah. doing something out of passion and someone's doing it as a job, the job at some point is going to feel like a job and it's tedious where someone else is just doing it for fun. Right. That's why, you know, when someone says, follow your passion, you'll succeed. It's, it's, it's because you yeah. can't outwork passion. Yeah. And, and the extension of that is if you're going to be a great leader, you got to find a way to make the people that are working with you embody that passion to, mm -hmm. to a degree. Yep. It may not ever be at the level that a business owner will be at, but that's, mm -hmm. that's what you're trying to instill is like empower yeah. people to believe in it the same way that you believe in it so that they can apply that passion to their work because you yeah. can't outwork passion yeah so now it's 2011 you're 2011 in. yeah february yeah. 2011 we moved into that space and you're um, still doing leagues for how, how much pretty well just transferred the two nights a week of league that were happening in the backyard into that warehouse it was only big enough for four targets about a thousand square feet so we just transplanted everything in there kicked off the leagues in february those first leagues, there was still the trench in the floor with plywood over top of it. People were actually throwing over the trench in their throw motion. Nobody cared, you know, it was, it was, it was super cool, man. People were just hanging out on this metal framework of a mezzanine, dangling their feet off. It's one of my favorite photos, like 10 people, just their feet dangling off this mezzanine in this empty apartment with a pile of boxes in the corner hiding my mattress and and there's you know i mean apartment apartment there. is giving it too much justice i've been to that location <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah apartment probably is not the right word <laughs> no, it's not. i mean derelict you, warehouse yeah, yeah. i mean the, the, what, what people may not know is you know when you say you lived there for five years you were technically squatting yeah like that was oh, not yeah. a legal place no, to, not, to, to sleep 100 percent not 
a legal place to sleep. Yeah. When I was living there at one point, so that corner that was my mattress over the months that followed, we built a washroom with a shower in it that was for me. The community used the public washrooms in the building, but I had a bathroom and behind that, a 10 by 10 room where everything of my personal life existed outside of axe throwing. And my bed was actually on the share against the wall that was also the left side of the final lane. So I would hear axes slamming against that, that wall at all hours of the day as well. But you'd said uh, squatting there. Yeah. So we actually hit a point where we also built a room on the mezzanine upstairs. And my buddy, uh, a good friend, Elaine, was living there for a while in between some travel stuff that he was doing. So he was there for about six months. And I got a message from my landlord that was like, hey, we've had a fire code issue. The fire department's coming in two days. There can be no evidence of you living in this space. And so I had to move out for two days. So we, Elaine and I both, so we packed up everything we had and threw it into cars of friends and parked the cars around the corner on the street and like tilted our mattresses up against the wall and like put things in front of it to make, try and make the bedroom look like an office. Luckily it was also an office. So there were were some office elements and, and do our best to look, make it look like we weren't there. So when the fire department came through, they didn't uh, suspect anything, but we had to do that twice. And that was another one where it was like, like Elaine and I look back on it. We kind of loved it in a weird way. It was like, there just wasn't a choice. So once you're fully, you're in it together. Yeah. You're committed to the act, right? Like, this is what we're doing. This is what's happening. Well, okay. We got 36 hours to pack up and make it look like we don't live here. Yeah. You know, look, you got to make it work. And we did, we just got it done. So it was a great adventure, man. Yeah. So now you're at a point where, you know, it's still not a business. It's a passion. Tell me the turning point. Yeah. So we moved those two leagues in, we started expanding league. Uh, That was the first move. So leagues were running Monday, Tuesday night. We added a Wednesday, we added a Sunday group. Uh, we did that by just posting on Facebook, open invite. And, you know, 100 people showed up to the first one of those that we did. Uh, wow. It was wild. And when strangers were coming to the place, I think this is a valuable touch point, is that when strangers came into the place, before they arrived, I'm there with Yari, who is a very close friend at this point. He was the guy that, when Diamond joined the league, the group of eight, the person that he brought was mm-hmm. Yari. They're both absolutely lovely humans, but they're also quite visually imposing. Mm-hmm. Yari's a six-foot-four Finlander. With very much, you know, the braided goatee, very Viking looking, and and Diamond, uh, you know, used to be a professional bodybuilder. You know, he's five foot ten, two hundred sixty pounds of pure muscle. Right, great people, but they they're very much like I was like, guys, a hundred strangers are coming to throw axes. Can you be here to make sure people behave? And they're like, absolutely. You know, they're also at that point like anchors in the community because they're part of that original eight and that has Mm -hmm. at this point all kinds of clout yeah so they're there and we're going how do we make sure that people behave themselves and it was like the idea was you got to respect what we're doing so when everybody amassed together we had we got swamped real quick i just stepped in front of the crowd and said here's the rules of conduct this is how you behave this is how you throw this is the safety element listen to the people on the lanes at all times and I was like, and be good to each other in this space or get the fuck out. That's that, your war cry now. Be yeah, good to one be another. Be good to each other or get the, or fuck, get the out. fuck out. And that really, like Diamond and Yari loved that when I, when I dropped it on the crowd. And the crowd really like laughed and was like, it was the right kind of people there mm-hmm. that were like, right on, we get it. Mm-hmm. So that became a mantra that stuck with us still. So that was a big moment. But, uh, but anyway, we expanded to the two nights a week instantly as soon as we opened that door on the sunday night league there was a group of from a hockey team about 12 people from a hockey team and they decided they want to have their hockey party at battle and so i figured out a a format charged them a per head fee and they came out we we taught everybody how to throw and we ran a tournament for them and that was the turning point because that was now 
a source of income. And did you know it, like when you first designed that kind of pro, that first kind of event-based program, that the light bulb go off? Like, oh shit! Or, not, or, or was it afterwards? Not until or? we did it. It was when Got we were it. in it, and we were like, "Holy!" Oh, so man. like that that night, you're like, "Oh." Well, so at this point, the light bulb's certainly gone off with all of us in our own heart, we know how addictive and, and awesome yeah. it is. Now we've seen it not only in the backyard when we had some open invites to extend league, but also now in the warehouse when we had this open invite, we've now seen hundreds of people come in and try it and it's the same for everyone. We know that that element is there where people go, whoa, the, okay, again. Mm-hmm. But then when we put them into the competitive format and did that, seeing people that had all come for the first time, get inserted into the competitive framework and have that like just blow up in the best way was like, okay, this is serious. And we weren't advertising anywhere. We were totally hidden. I, I in fact, was trying to stay hidden because we, like, we weren't doing things legally. I had no business license in that place. Like You were drinking booze, yeah. throwing axes, and yeah. you didn't have, like, were you even incorporated as a company at that point? I had a sole proprietor license. Okay. And I did have insurance at that point. but Which probably didn't cover shit. It didn't. And we also <laughs> and we also couldn't get insured as the Backyard Axe Throwing League. So we actually had to redo the acronym. My buddy Charles, same Chucky Sasich, his brother-in-law was an insurance broker. It's the only reason that I was able to get insured in the first place back in the day is because he took it and packaged it as the Recreational Targeting Association. So the word axe and the word throwing what wouldn't, weren't in it. Yeah. And he packaged that to an insurance company. And then they were like, we'll insure you on the space. But if anybody's doing anything like this, this, this is pretty much summing up exactly what we're doing, then you're not covered. Mm-hmm. But that insurance got me a lease because there was no lease if the if the unit wasn't protected for the landlord. So that's where we're at with that. I really love that one. It was the Recreational Targeting Association. <laughs> pretty funny. Lots of acronyms over the years that we've had to throw in and out. But yeah, that event happened and we weren't advertising anywhere. We weren't promoting anywhere. And all of a sudden my phone is going off. And it's people just, that want to do this. It's event. just the people that were in that event going, I need to do this again. I've got a group. Can we do it? Same thing. And I was like, sure. So I said yes to about 10 of those 25 people that came to that party over the next three weeks and booked them in for parties. And, and then that snowball. That snowballed. And that was in 2000 and 2012. 2012. Beginning in 2012. Okay. So we moved in in 2011. We expanded league throughout the summer to the four nights a week and then ran that first party somewhere in the fall or winter of 2011 and then 2012 is when the phone okay. started so ringing. now now the events are picking up and i know you know you're like oh sh- like 14 week wait list yeah we so we implemented a schedule pretty quick realizing the demand and it was like we could do a, an event on thursday night and on friday night because there was no league those nights we could only do one group at a time because we only had four targets so our thing was one group at a time minimum six people we'll throw you a party be three hours long you know, we'll run a tournament for you per person charge. And you hired your friends. And I just started paying my friends cash to come and coach the events. And it was the friends that were part of the league that knew how to score, that knew how it worked, that knew how to throw, knew how to coach. They were personable people, most of which also had had some sort of hospitality background. And so we let people bring their own beers and come and hang out and do these parties. So we did Thursday night, Friday night. We did Saturday at 12, 4, and 8 o'clock. And then we did Sunday at 1 p.m. And then league would start at 5 p.m. on Sunday. So that schedule filled up and was about booked up about 14 weeks out by the time we hit the summer of 2012. And then 2013, December, you open your next location. Yeah, 2013, December, 
December 11th, we get the keys to uh, 33 Villiers Street, which is the our Portland's location. Which is in still Toronto. kind of the it is the absolutely flagship. the flagship. It is the rock the star, OG, the OG, yeah, in a hundred year old munitions factory. That's just it looks the part. It looks the part, man. It's a yeah. beautiful old, full of character building. No um, air conditioning. No air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, it's got heat that kind of works. It's got ghosts living in it for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, heat but that kind of works. The reality is, I mean, you know, I, I know our business model has changed. And, you know, we're going to get into that. But, you know, having the first location that rustic and kind of authentic, I think, just yeah. is a great story. I think it's yeah. uh, it's important to the, to oh, the overall totally. culture and, yeah. and story of this business. Yeah. And, um, man, I started looking for a new for a second place in probably like May of 2012. Yeah. We didn't get into that place until December 2013. And that location is how many square feet? You've gone from four 7, targets. 7,000. So we went from 7,000 1, 1, square feet in the first spot with four targets. The Portland's location, which which I also call Villiers because that's the street it's on, uh, is 16 targets, 7,000 square feet, old ass, wooden beams, wooden ceiling, brick walls, beautiful warehouse. So yeah, and I lost like three real estate agents uh, in that process because they were just like, would you just fucking pick a place? And I was like, no, this isn't right. I was just stressing out about it. Mm-hmm. And we certainly, I'm happy we did because that that place, yeah. we still we scored, Still around. Man. We still got many years left in that, uh, yeah, in that man, space. Just extended the lease. Landlord's great. Just got declared a heritage building. So they're doing tons of development all around that area, but they cannot touch our building. That's awesome. My landlord, it's his first building. So it's his baby too. Mm-hmm. So we're in that together of like, and he could never rent that place. It's the yeah. back of an otherwise totally upgraded uh, building with other, mm-hmm. you know, high end suites and video sound recording, all this stuff happening in the front. But the unfinished back end, he could never rent with for a long term tenant. He was doing three month contracts, six months talk contracts with film companies. And I walked in and went, I'll take it the whole thing on a real monthly deal. And he he loved it. He thought the idea was great. He's an entrepreneur himself who built his own business and then bought that building as a tenant in the building. So he got it, man. So and so, he still so, gets yeah, it. Going back to like vision. Right. I mean, you know, you had a clear vision of of what you wanted the space to look like and, yeah. you know, where you saw it going and, and holding out because you you had a wait list at the yin yang. Right. I mean, like yeah. if, you, if you would have opened that second location earlier, you would have made money on it. Man, we got the keys on December 10th. We gutted and built that whole place in 10 days for like 60 grand or something like that. Yes. About about that. Yeah. About yeah that. Which was probably all your money. Oh, yeah. It was also like, yeah, it was all everything that had been saved up from the other location. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was doing payment plans with my buddy Lewis, who was the the main contractor. He was he also helped me build the washroom when I would pay him. Yeah. He'd do the hard stuff, and I'd do the easy stuff so that I could pay him as little as possible. And he let me pay him a month later or whatever because we were buddies. Yeah. And so he was the same guy. I brought his team on to do the village location, and he just he was like, I know you'll figure it out. And he also was the main. I met him through the Brass Taps bar that I was working at, so he knew I had a a job that was making me money. So even if it took me a year, I would- So you were still working at the the bars, even until 2013? End of 2012 is when I left the bars. Yeah, I still had a shift at each bar. For, for that time as like a fallback plan because I still didn't believe that it was not going to get pulled out. It's interesting me. because, you know, you hear you hear people talk about like going all in and believing that. I don't that, buy it. And yeah. I want to ask you why, you know, because, you know, that success is the only option and no, uh, you know, don't have a fallback plan. Why don't you buy that? You never have to jump off a cliff. You just don't. Like people talk about that concept a lot. You have to take a chance. You have to, you have to believe in something and go for it. And I think a lot of people convince themselves that that they're busy in their normal life. 90% of the world has no fucking clue what busy is. No clue. Couldn't agree more. You think your 32 hours a week is hard for you? Like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. You know what you do? 
you work at the bar five days a week and every other waking moment you focus on the other thing you're trying to build. Well, let's go back. Walmart, Swiss Chalet, school, theater. I mean, this is this what you've been doing this since day one. Since 16 years old. And so again, work ethic, right? Like yeah. these are all the things Just that, that, that yeah. you know, you're adding up in your, in your mind. And what I'm going to argue is that I think that there is a pattern of attributes that lead to an obvious kind of conclusion that someone has built for entrepreneurship. Because I do, I believe, and we're going to get to this a little, little bit later, I believe that nature is a huge component of it. I think that, uh, mm. you know, either you're born with some of these qualities or you're not. And unfortunately, that's just the way it is. I know we disagree on, on some of this. I mean, you know, I, I think I get a lot of it from like my parents, right? Like, sure, like, I, like and, my and, and, mom and, grinding out, yeah. raising my brother. And I don't, you know. well, yeah, but, but she had that in her DNA as well. Oh, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I could go back to her parents too, though. Yeah, so we yeah. can, it's a marriage of both. Yeah, in my so, opinion, so we'll, right? we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't discount nurture, you know, I, I, but I, I also don't think everyone could be an entrepreneur. And I think that that's silliness to think that that's the case. It's just like, you know, I would have spent my whole life trying to become a professional basketball player. It ain't in the cards. Like, yeah. I'm not built like LeBron James. Yeah, there's elements um, for sure. So there's, yeah. there's just inherent qualities that one has that well, are, you're born with. It goes back with. to do what you're good at, right? Like, And that's really what I want to preach the most <laughs> is like, you know, there's this rock star quality to entrepreneurship these days where it's sexy to think that you're an entrepreneur. But the reality is, is like, it's actually okay not to be an entrepreneur. Like there's positives oh, and negatives, right? I mean, 100%. there's that sexiness today or, you know, or that rock star quality, but it comes with fucking loneliness. It comes with more anxiety. Yeah, it think, comes with stress. I think the sexiness comes from all the people slapping the word on their Instagram account, yeah. you know, like, mm-hmm. like, sure, sure. Instagram is sexy and putting fucking buzzwords on your Instagram is sexy. I don't use the word entrepreneur. We're referring yeah. to myself. I just fucking do my thing. Yeah. I own a business. I run a business. I started a business. Great. I, I'm an entrepreneur. Sure. But like, I feel like the word is so I thrown agree. around. I agree. That like, skip it. You know, real entrepreneur just puts in the work, it just does the thing for me to just backtrack a little bit to the blend. Like, I had the days of work. I I was fortunate as well that I had two jobs where both of those owners supported what I was trying to do. So I was able to, I was in a unique situation there that I understand not everybody maybe is in, but there's an element of just like applying yourself to figuring out how to do both, right? Keep your current income and start working on the other piece and then start supplementing one for the other. But you're in that unique situation because you're great at having people believe in you and building good relationships, right? So it's not like this this isn't just like a you you happen to fucking find yourself here. Again, a a blend of both, you know? As I said earlier, I, I know that I'm good with managing relationships with, with the people that I'm close to. So helping people understand what I'm trying to do and and also being upfront with them about it, I think is key. I yeah. want to go back to that managing relationships because I want to be careful that people don't view it through the lens of like, this is like a pre-planned way of manipulating. It's like, it's authenticity, right? Yeah, it's like it, honest, it has to be, yeah. co- it has to come from a place yeah. of true authenticity. I approached, well, first of all, both of those people were close friends, those yep. owners, Dave Latham at the Brass Taps and, and Chris at Ted's Collision. So they knew what I was doing. They thought it was cool as shit. You know, they were all for it. They loved, they'd come check it out. Dave Latham threw in a league in the backyard. Mm-hmm. He was awesome. He came and cleaned everyone's clock for one season. And it was like, he was a natural. And he was like, I'm never throwing again. I'm never, that, that was wicked. Uh, but he was a big fan. Well, if, so, he, if he would have known it's, it's turned into a professional sport, <laughs> maybe, he fucked up. Maybe, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> hey, Dave, where you at? Let's go. Let's go. Put the, put the old shoes back on. Let's do this. But, you know, I said to them, I was like, look, I want to keep doing this thing. Are you okay with me? Is it okay if I give 
give away this shift, but can I still be part of the team? You know, and just mm-hmm. talk to them about it. And they were both like, yeah, right on. And for a little while at the end there, I had one shift at both spots, but I'd kind of cleared it with both owners to say, if something comes up for Axelrong, are you okay with me giving those shifts to other yeah. people? And both the bars were successful enough that that there was no problem with somebody mm-hmm. else taking that shift. Everybody was hungry to do it. And the rest of the people that I worked with were supportive as well. Awesome. So they were like, yeah, man, just let me know. So now you're 2014. We're almost getting to the point where we met. Yeah. So 2013, <laughs> we opened. And in the first 12 days, we do 56 private events in that December uh, after we did the 10-day flip yep. of the venue. And then we launched 450 new league members off of a wait list of 500 in Incredible. January. And then you come in summer, probably June, because we signed a deal together in august but so we had a couple months navigating so you came in june yeah Yeah, so i'll give you guys what actually happened so sebastian who's uh the coo and partner in firepower had booked uh in the summer of 14 an event just a team building event uh, at battle and i had heard about it after it was booked and i honestly thought it was a stupid idea i'm like what the fuck is this (laughs) um and i called to try and cancel but would have lost my hundred dollar deposit I'm not losing a hundred dollar deposit. So uh, we ended up going bit of a kicking and screaming and, you know, roll up there and, you know, we got a six pack in our hand because at the time it was BYOB and uh, blessing and a curse that BYOB. Yeah, 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 we'll get to that. (laughs) And uh, instantaneously, I throw that first axe and I'm looking around the room and it's a Thursday at four o'clock and I'm counting like 80 people in the venue doing the math in my head. I'm like, holy fuck, there's a business here. And then through the first axe and okay, I get it. 100%. 100%. I'm like, this is a winner. I just knew yeah. immediately I knew it was a winner. I'll elaborate a little more. I mean, I have, I have a few core theses, you know, when it when it relates to, you know, why I like certain businesses, because Axelring is very different. But what I knew right away is, A, there was a community happening. Like, there was something happening within the group. It made everyone equal. It got everyone into that, like, childlike mentality of, like, let's just compete and have fun. You know, you're coming to the company, and it could be the secretary, it could be the CEO. Everyone's even. There's no hierarchy in that community, which is so phenomenally interesting. But the other thing, and I know we've spoken about this at length, is, you know, I'm a massive, massive fan of Dana White. Dana White being the president of the UFC, again, going back to my genetics background, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear me talk about DNA a lot because that's kind of my obsession. But Dana White says something that's super interesting about the UFC and fighting. He says, you know, kicking a ball into a net means something because you say it means something. Putting a ball through a hoop, you know, means something because you say it means something. Punching someone in the face always means something. People like it. They get it. It's in our DNA. And when I threw that first axe, I knew that there was something vestigial in our DNA that just lit up that primal part of us. It was probably the first time we killed something, we threw something sharp at it, right? I mean, it probably goes back further than we can imagine. And uh, I just, I like businesses that, you know, light something up instinctually in us and 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 i felt that in myself and i'm very lucky that i observed it and and again you know luck meets opportunity i'm obsessed with this concept so i am always viewing the world through that lens so i knew right away and i you know my side of the story is i gave my card to the the coach and i said who's the owner what's he doing what's going on he's like he's a fucking bartender you know like we're just you know opening this you know he just opened this business i don't really have a clue but i'll give you his card so you know, needless to say, I think the card got given to him, but, you know, Matt, you know, he'd never sp- spent time with 
fucking finance guy, you know, you know, <laughs> no, an, an investor sure type. Not. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had to hunt him down. And I, and I remember the, the email that kind of got the response finally was uh, I found a blog online from someone pinpointing battle in Toronto. And it was the only location on planet Earth. And, you know, today there's 500 plus locations. Yeah, 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 just so, in general, like just in general, yeah, 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 yeah. Organizations just in general, yeah. yeah, over so, 500 for sure. So, and someone had written, you know, someone needs to bring this to New York. So I sent that link and I wrote TikTok. Yeah, and, I remember that. You know, we yeah. finally met up. Yeah, and, you'd and, already emailed me a couple times and I hadn't responded. Yeah, and, and I had a bunch of people sending me emails that were super condescending, and that I was taking quite a lot of offense to at the time. Like, you don't know what you're doing. Why don't you let me take your business on and I'll grow it you know, that type of stuff. Yep. And I was like, fuck you yeah. to all of those. I just didn't respond. Yours was not that. Yours was like, hey man, you've done a great thing here. I think I can help get some money together so that you can do more. It was very much about mm -hmm. empowering me of the dozens of interested emails of the business that I'd gotten at that point. Yours was the only one of that tone. And I was like, okay, this is a collaborator. So mm -hmm. you had my attention from that, but I still didn't respond. Mm -hmm. And then it was the TikTok one. And then it was me coming to league. <laughs> I think that was super important. Yeah, well, then we met. And showing up with beer. <laughs> yeah, well, we met. We had met at that point. Yeah. So yeah, you, the yeah, TikTok yeah. email got the response, right? I was like, okay, all right, he's making a point. Let's talk. And so we had a couple of sit downs. And I want to be very clear. Matt at the time did not look like he looks today. He had fucking <laughs> mutton chop. Uh, I did. You yeah. know, he he had the do rag. I was like, holy shit. Yes, and like, I was, I'm, I, I'm this Jew from Thornhill. You know, like, I, this is this is not in my <laughs> my wheelhouse. Yeah, as, as Ian, <laughs> but, I, but I'm pretending to be like totally cool with this. <laughs> yes. As Ian likes, likes to refer to it, uh, who's one of my longest friends and like my first employee at Battle, and he's still is working with me in the team now. Now he's the, the senior manager of the of the International Axling Federation. But he used to call those the uh, white trash Wolverine days. There you go. Because I had the mutton chops yeah. and the bandana, uh, wearing a tank top almost all the time, mm -hmm. and then uh, torn like shredded up jean jacket over top of that. A editors, if you could insert picture here, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> There's some good ones, no doubt. Yeah. There's some good ones, man. I look back and people are like, what? Like, yeah. that was you? Like, yeah, man. Hey, man, sure we all was. have a story. I go all in. That was, yeah. those were so, 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 so we, days, we landed up, you know, long story short, because we can go on for four hours if we wanted to. I mean, I landed up putting in, you know, about seven figures into the business with about four seconds of, of due diligence because uh, yeah. there wasn't really nothing to be due diligence. Yeah, um, And, uh, you know, I said from day yeah. one, you know, I'm going to stay out of your way. I'll be there to support you and I'll believe in your, your ability to grow. Let's fast forward because, you know, let's get to the punchline of where we sit today, you know, because I think that we're on our way, you know, very, very close. In the next couple months, we'll have 23 locations open. Mm -hmm. You know, employee count of close to 400, I think. Yep. A head office. Uh, you know, 15 of, of, plus of, a call center of another 12. Yeah, of incredible people. Yeah, and, and we could talk about team. Yeah, I could, I could some gush about our team forever. Yeah. It really is the, the engine. Yeah, and, and, and then that's the location side of the business. And then we also own the, the International Axe Throwing Federation, which is the professional sport of axe throwing. And we'll get into why, you know, we, we did that strategically. Yeah. And, you know, not only strategically, but for the passion of growing that sport. Yeah. Um, more importantly. But, you know, talk about, you know, we went from one location, we built six kind of quickly in 2015, basically. Yep. That first injection let us open six locations in the next six months. And so we did that uh, throughout Ontario, southern Ontario. And we did one uh, in Calgary, Alberta, which was our first test of like, what happens when we need to fly to another city to manage this thing? Can we still do that? Mm -hmm. uh, we learned a lot in that process. We're still learning in, in Calgary. 
well, still learning all the time about all of the venues, but it certainly helped us understand what we needed to hone in on in order to scale. So we did those six, learned a lot, put the brakes on the man, growth. Man, I love the language of scale. And, you know, like, I think, like, <laughs> <laughs> did you ever think back in 2014 yeah, right? that you'd be talking about scale and EBITDA and margins and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Equities and raises and, yeah, yeah. who would have thought, right? Yeah. Um, certainly has been an adventure. But, uh, but yeah, we, we figured out what we needed to bring to scale, you know, and, and when you came on board, we actually had uh, brought on board a, a man by the name of Brian Simmons, who was mm -hmm. instrumental in those early days to implement those tools and help me understand what we needed to do to yeah build build real business I, infrastructure as we said before i did not know how to do was, that you had a spreadsheet and i knew that i did account. not know how to yeah. do that yeah yeah and, and you had insurance that, that covered nothing yeah exactly so we had, we had yeah. to change that right yeah, away we had to change a few things right away <laughs> yeah. and brian was instrumental brian understood what those building blocks were and i learned a ton from him and i hope he learned a ton from me and and uh, him and i were the right and left hand that that really started building those other locations and then putting in the tools to, to grow. It's amazing. I mean, people don't really appreciate the change in business structure and mentality when you go from one, even two, even three locations to a multi-location business, you know, man, in numerous locations. geographies. When you hit number three. Things change. Things change, man, mm -hmm. 100%. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, just everyone after that is harder, you know, it's just, yeah. it's just, it's a lot of work. You got to have the right people in place. You got to have the right team in place. And for a long time, we were being a little re more reactionary than I would have liked if I look back on it. But you kind of don't have a choice yeah. uh, when you're just trying to navigate so many things at and once. And there was no blueprints. No one like we yeah. hadn't seen anyone to do this before. Yeah, yeah. You know, like true. like we we didn't have competition until when 2000 and probably middle of 2015, maybe. Yeah. A year later. Year yeah, and, and then we only had one competitor for quite a while. Yeah. And the, the first location outside of Canada popped up in. Maybe 2017. Yeah. Uh, maybe, I mean, maybe 2016, actually. Yeah, probably maybe. probably 2016 that there was a US location. Yeah. Um, you know, because, oh, no, certainly. What am I talking about? Absolutely 2016. Urban Axes was one of the founding members of the International Axe Federation, and that we launched in 2016. So Urban Got Axes. It. Urban Axes was one of the early adopters in the US for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. If not the first, they were. Which they, they, they threw a league of. in Toronto. They did. They right? absolutely. So, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, and they approached us as well. They approached yeah. uh, the owners there approached us to say, "Hey, do you want to partner?" And and we were in over our heads with our yeah. own workload at that point. So so it just didn't make sense for us. And they went yeah. off and did, did yeah, it themselves. And another and, great ownership. And group. hats off. Yeah, yeah. Do you hats know, off. I think that's, that's that's one of the things that that people are surprised by. Uh, you know, our kind of acceptance of competition. I mean, for us, and I know I speak for Matt as well. Is like, do it right, do it with passion, do it safely, and we're fucking cool with that. Yeah, go do right? it. I mean, yeah. like we like we want to propagate the sport. Well, and that, but that was that was the motivator for the International Axe Federation. I so mean, talk about that. I mean, you know, that's that's, that's it's an interesting, it's an important component of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned earlier you said strategic, and then you you know further emphasized the growth of the sport. Let's not downplay strategic. The strategy was the world doesn't understand what we're doing. Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that we support people that are doing it well mm -hmm. and can unify some standards of safety so that if something does happen, God forbid, to someone, if there's an accident, that we can say, hey, it happened over there and these are the safety rules that we abide by and the people that are part of the IATF you know, abide by those and we have a great safety record. So it was about trying to, trying to share the 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 safety regulations as much as it was about aligning the rules so that we could all compete against each other right so we talk about safety a lot and i think what people will be surprised will will be and won't be i mean we combined throwing axes with getting liquor licenses and you know at the beginning i assure you that was not an easy thing 
Yeah, um, you know, one, one of the things that we did was commission a, a world-renowned safety expert to come and do a full analysis of our business uh, who was arm's length. We had no control over what that report was going to say yeah. and landed up showing that our sport was safer than darts because, you know, we have coaches on the lanes and, uh, you know, safer than bowling. And that we have to fight the Alberta government, one. Yeah. We've, we've fought in numerous jurisdictions who have this idea of what throwing an axe means and what it looks like and what it truly is. Yeah, they, they weren't in line. The paranoia and the and the abstract concept to them was not the same as what we were actually presenting. So we had to, we had to prove all those things. Yeah, it's funny when people say, like, well, what happens if someone turns around and throws an axe? I'm like, that could happen at Starbucks. Like, yeah. what, what are we talking about here? Like, yeah. you can't solve yeah. crazy. Yeah. But, you know, like, <laughs> that's a great line. Yeah. Right. Like, you can't solve crazy. Yeah. Like, you, you can go bowling. Somebody could turn around and throw a bowling ball. 100%. At you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, uh, and I've, I've said this before. I'll say it again, man. The amount of times that people go and pick up a bowling ball, it's too heavy for them to actually bowl with and risk not being able to control that thing versus mm -hmm. we're throwing a one and a half pound hatchet. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's fairly light. It's not razor sharp. There's a lot of pieces to the business. So, you know, not only is the sport safe, but the part that the safety assessment did was investigated. And this was a great eye opener for us that that helped prompt the ITF because the ITF hadn't launched yet. They were investigating battle is to see the level of detail of what they wanted to look at. Like they reviewed our training material. They sat in on staff meetings. They sat in on for full shifts where they shadow people that were working at the venue. It wasn't just about the axe and the target. It was about the equipment, the lane setup, the direction you gave your staff for how your staff were supposed to direct the guests. All of those things were a part of the assessment. And that was the stuff that we wanted to put out there. And show the how, much, how much detail we had thought of. Yeah. And say, like, here, look, this is how you stay safe. This yeah. is how you make and, 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 and you got to do the same thing at any yeah. place. Like there's rules about how to manage a bar that's also a restaurant to yeah. keep it safe and keep it at capacity. And there's ways that you got to operate a kitchen to make sure it stays sanitary. You know, it's all about codification lay out the process, prove the product, and demonstrate it. And I think what was so interesting is, I mean, you know, this is a brand new concept to everyone who kind of heard of it, but you'd be doing this for 10 years, right? Yeah. Like th this was yeah, this, totally. this was not a, a brand new thing to you. You had probably thrown millions of axes by this point, yeah, seen yeah. every bad bounce, understood exactly what happens. Absolutely. You know, we saw all kinds of things in the backyard. And every time we saw a thing, we'd add an element, right? Mm -hmm. We're like, whoa, okay, shit, that happened. Didn't expect that. That mm -hmm. bounce was crazy okay, we got to add this thing to make sure that doesn't endanger somebody if yeah. it ever happens again, you know? And yeah. we saw some, you know, one in a million throws, you know, yeah. things like that happen. And I think what's frustrating is, I mean, I think a lot of people have seen some viral videos that pop up of axes coming flying back. And the reality is, you know, we look at those videos as people who know this sport really well and we're like, rubber floor, rubber handled axe, like would never fucking happen in our venues. Like clearly, uh, you know, you know what? Wh like, why? There's that, but there's also... You know, there's the right things to put in place to make sure that you're limiting your risk. And that's true with everything, every business, every socially acceptable thing that people do. The other side of it is, you know, there is a one in a million throw. There mm -hmm. is a one in a million bad bounce. And you know what? There is in basketball too. And there is in walking down the stairs at a stadium, you mm -hmm. know, and there is in everything, you yeah. know, like salt your sidewalk so people don't slip and fall. Like do the things to make it as safe yeah. as you can make it. Does that mean that nobody ever slips and falls? No, it doesn't. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? This is the world we live in. It's not a, a rubber, you know, not everything isn't made of rubber. You're not going to just be fine always. Right. So yeah. there is inherent risk in being alive. You know, yeah. and, and in running a business, there is risk. You want yeah. to do everything you can to mitigate that risk. 
And that's why, you know, we, we have over 50 million axes tracked in our database right now. No serious injury at the ITF. And that's since 2016, let alone the 10 years before that, that I've been throwing axes at. No serious injury. Handful of small nicks of the finger and that sort of thing. A couple of scary looking bounces, but no serious injury. That's what the safety qualification was. How many axes have been thrown versus what is the actual risk? And is it acceptable for society to participate in this thing? Yes, it is. And that safety survey also said more so than bowling, more yeah. so than track and field, more so than darts at a bar. So now, so. you know, we sit here today in 2020 where axe throwing has become, I, I'm not going to say household. I'm going to say that's the goal, a, a fringely <laughs> accepted sport. Most people have kind of heard of someone who's done it. I think um, internally we feel like we're in the mainstream, but yeah, the truth is we're not. Quite. We're not. We're not even close. I think yeah. actually, yeah, but it's it's on its way, and you know, there's multiple hundreds, if not you know, a thousand locations globally. I mean, yep. the reaction has changed. It used to be, I run an axe throwing business. You yeah. own a what? Yeah. And now it's. Oh, yeah, cool. My brother's done that. And now it's like, oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You get, yeah. oh, I've heard of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, we're making progress. So, so, so I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know how, how often I ask you, if I at all. It's like, take a step back and, like, now view the world and, like, you changed the world. There, there is an activity that happens globally that didn't exist prior to you throwing that first axe in the backyard. You know, how does that feel? How often do you let yourself think about that? Uh, never. <laughs> <laughs> Never. And my, I, even as you're saying it, and I, you're I'm, I'm in my head already rehearsing <laughs> the answer that's going to say it existed before we did it. Um, yeah. You know, axe throwing has been around forever. Right? I get like it. Traditional yeah. axe throwing, double bit stuff's been around for ages. You know, if you want to get a good taste of that, go see the boys at Timber Lounge uh, in Halifax. Darren Hudson is a is an OG of the, of the OGs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that dude is awesome and they do, do great things out there. But yeah, man, as far as the urban axe throwing, our rule set, the ITF, I did get a chance to kind of step back and soak that up uh, this past two weekends ago when we had our biggest tournament of the year so ever. far. Ever. Biggest, biggest, biggest tournament, tournament, biggest, biggest tournament ever, tournament globally ever. ever. Yeah. 256 people from all over the world came to Toronto to compete after competing for all of 2019 to qualify and make it to that place. 16 from, from Australia alone. Yeah, and a couple from New Zealand and all over. And we we had that happen at four different venues in Toronto to whittle it down to the top 32. And then we had that top 32 compete at a sportsplex where we built out a full sort of stadium experience and we're able to give away $50,000 in prize money to all 30 divided up, paid down to 32 people and, and had a seven or 800 people in, in attendance and did a full high production live stream and the whole bit. And for sure, that was an emotional moment to, to finish that weekend yeah. and go, holy shit, man, this is cool. I'd actually love to hear a little more about like, like, where do you think this is going to go? You know, I, I know that we kind of live in the moment, but what's your view on, on, you know, we're sitting here five years from now. What, what does this look like? It's already in some ways global, right? It exists in a whole lot of countries at this stage in this form. And that's super exciting. The sport itself, you know, needs to, needs to continue to grow and, and it will. You know, this big tournament uh, a couple of weeks ago was a, was a sign of that. I want to I want to push the limit on that. I want to get to a place where we have like the equivalent of the Grand Slam of axe throwing tournaments. I want to have like 
four or six like major tournaments with seven figure prize money. We want people to make living from yeah. I want from I want there axes. to be yeah. I want it to be like right now it's an individual sport as well. You're competing on your own. There's there's something beautiful about that, but I know that there's there's evolution there as well. There's more ways that we can create great competition in in different ways, uh, whether it's you know doubles teams or other other things like yeah, that. Not, not too similar but, to tennis. In yeah, some ways. yeah. I, I compare it a lot to tennis. I do a lot of tennis comparisons. My dad was a tennis player growing up. I played tennis as a kid. Uh, he was a fanatic. I grew up watching Boris Becker, you know, sacrifice his body on the on the tennis court. And I think I compare it that that way. I want to get to that point. I want people to be making seven figures on prize money, sponsorships, endorsements, be professional athletes that are axe throwers and 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 do that. I want to take over Darts television time. We're, more we're coming exci- for you. We're, we're coming for you. Appreciate what Darts has been doing recently. Yeah, They're it's amazing. They, you know, it's a fantastic sport as well, and and it's really kind of revitalizing itself uh, with a female champion recently as well, which is a huge yeah. win for them. And we love that we've got uh, you know female and male competitors in the same arena as well. Yeah, um, I, I remember you know way back in the day when we proposed making a male and female division, and the females were like, yeah. "Fuck no." Yeah. No, you know, I think that's one of the beautiful parts of our sport is yeah. that it's it's so inclusive. Yeah, anybody can do it, and it's not about physical strength; it's no. about skill. It's about fine tuning the skills. So, yeah. so yeah, man, I want to I want to take it to that level. I want to I want it to be on TV, and it, it's already approaching that. We've, there's there's some stuff that's on TV now. Some of the some of the tournaments do get television exposure, and we want to amplify that. And as far as battle goes, you know, we're going to continue to grow. We want to continue to open locations and and share the love of this uh, of this activity with as many people as we can. Because that light switch is still there for a lot of people to to turn on, which is sure. that first axe you stick, it changes you. And the extension of that is I want to bring that community out to the world. Right? I was like, literally about to go back to community. You know, it's like, something, something that we talk a lot about. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, my, my view is that as social media has permeated our lives, we've become less social. You know, I, I, I bet you, you, you and me both, I mean, you had your community at church. I, you know, I, I had... You know, friends on the street, as you probably did as well. Like, I don't fucking know my neighbors anymore. Like, yeah. my kids don't have friends on the on street the that they yeah. play uh, road hockey with. Yeah, the world's changed. Yeah, and you know we've proven over and over again that human beings are social beings. One hundred. Right. I mean, like, if you want to look at what happens to people in you know solitary confinement, they go fucking crazy. Yeah. Right. Like, it doesn't work. Like, yeah. humans need social interaction. Yeah. So, so talk to me a bit about that side of the business because I know, as I mentioned. The mission statement of the business is, you know, actually, I want you to say it because I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's your mission. Yeah, I think you actually said it earlier yeah. on in the in the in this uh, sit down, but it's, uh, you know, we want to use the axe as a tool to build community inspired by our backyard roots, and that that's our mission statement. When I started doing axe throwing in 2006, it was Facebook was just sort of taken over for MySpace, I think, around then, and the social media boom was just beginning, and it feels like we were kind of starting to solve a problem as it was happening, where creating a space for people to interact with each other in that space. And then when we did the be good to each other or get the fuck out part, the extension of that was acceptance, right? Let let everybody be themselves, be their real selves. And, and you're not allowed to make it an unsafe place for that, for those people to do that. And if you do, you're not welcome here. That has been a really key piece of the building block since day one. It's the foundation and the fabric of the ITF, the global ambassador of the rules, you know, the guardians of the sport, as we like to to try to be. You know, if you come and see, if you look up the photos or streams or whatever of, of any of our competitions, you see some camaraderie between competitors mm. that you don't Much see more than, in a lot than, of other sports. Yeah. yeah. And that is a special thing. And and it's because, you know, we promote the community and we want people to be good to each other and trying to pass on that that lesson. 
and and people are starving for physical interaction with other people like we stare at computers all day we stare at phones all day man put that stuff down for a bit come and hang out throw an axe cheer for your friend while they throw an axe talk about life catch up like that's what league is about let's double down on that i mean you want to bring in some like business strategy and you know the question i have is how much was it just natural intuition for you know how to build that community effectively and how much of it was like sitting down actually thinking about methodologies and strategies and 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 i'll give you an example and and for those uh you know who are watching this who have never been or aren't in the league uh, before every league starts, that's a part of battle. <laughs> You're oath, going there? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think uh, that's part of the... Uh... Uh, an oath is uh, kind of chanted by everyone. And it is, it's an incredible thing to watch. And the words are, remember primal man who only had his hands, who forged through fire and steel the tools to kill his meal. We honor him this day and pray our acts to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a tradition, man. I'm big on tradition as well. That was something that I wrote. So I'll tell you the, the story around that real quick. The night before the very first league, you know, we we're spent all day trying to get the targets up in the backyard and the fencing up how we needed it to make sure we were good to go. And I re- remember I, I mentioned my friend Nish, who, who actually taught me how to throw the first axe, and that he is a Conan the Barbarian-esque human being. We used to reference Conan the Barbarian all the time. He was very much inspiration for the whole thing, as teaching me to throw the first axe, and he was in that first league. So I was inspired by Conan the Barbarian and the, uh, trying to like write something fun to kind of kick things off. And I ended up writing like multi-page, ridiculously long oath, and I forced everybody in the backyard to like call and answer it. So I'd say a line, and then they had to repeat the line, and it was so. So you were you, you were already trying to be awful. a cult leader back then. <laughs> <laughs> it was so weird and awkward and awful, and they were just like. They were all just groaning and laughing. I was like, we're gonna, we're finishing it one time at least. We're finishing it. And we went through it. It took forever. It took like 10 minutes. Uh, and I, as it's happening, I realized what a stupid idea it was. But from that, I plucked those lines. And and that became, mm-hmm. you know, the war cry, right? The and ra- why the was it important? Cry. I mean, well, why have an oath? I mean, what did you, th- what do you think it brought to the table? When we were starting, it was fun, man. It was like, it was fun. It was good to be, like not be in a weird way to like make it more epic, you know, make it more over the top. You know, we also had a, a shofar, which was like a, a ram's horn that, mm-hmm. that we were blowing as like a signal horn after that. So we would do the oath with the axes in the air. And then I'd this trumpet that would sound like I'm in downtown Toronto in my backyard mm-hmm. doing this, right? Like for blocks, you're hearing How much do you think your kind of Mormon <laughs> upbringing, you know, kind of played a role in even subconsciously understanding how to get people to you know, <laughs> believe in like a common thing? I, I will not subscribe to your cult leader direction <laughs> of conversation. Uh, I'll say that like my experience with stage and theater certainly helped me get a good grasp of what like performance can be, right? Yeah. And making things memorable by being a little ridiculous is a, is a good time man like yeah. so so that's how it started and then once it started it was like life was um, like tradition is key man you don't mm-hmm. you don't mess with tradition it still happens before every league night and uh and you know you go to any battle venue and you'll hear it get bellowed out and after which now the everybody bangs axes on whatever piece of wood they can find so it's this thunderous like you know that that happens all that stuff is super primal stuff right like war cry vibes you know like let's go to battle man like we're about to we're about to battle so let's let it out and let's go and let's like respect the thing as well right like so that's it part of it is a reverence as well right Mm -hmm. so maybe there is some of that from the from the Mormon upbringing about reverence for a certain thing you want to respect you know we could speak for hours and the, the reality is you know I'm hoping that there's some people out there listening to this 
um, and hopefully some young entrepreneurs and and others that just find it entertaining. You know, for those people that really believe that they want to carve out a life that differs from the norm and want to be, you know, quote unquote, an entrepreneur, because I don't have a better word for it, and have the passion for something. What are those lessons? What are those what are those words of advice? You know, what are those themes that that you think are important for them to just remember, um, you know, as they start, you know, that kind of chapter of their life? First of all, like everybody says life is short. Sure, it is. At the same time, life is long. Don't freak out. It takes time. You know, it's almost like the 10,000 hour sort of rule, you know, you got to put in you a certain amount of time. You spent eight years before you even knew it was a business. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, yeah. I was doing it in the backyard mm-hmm. for four years before, you know, and then mm-hmm. it wasn't until, yeah, 2012 until we actually were like, wait a minute, this is something. So follow, man, cliche as it sounds, you know, follow your heart, do things that you love and just stick to it. You know, I think that's the biggest piece that it wouldn't exist if we didn't in the backyard, if there wasn't the concept that it was not acceptable to not do it when we said we were going to do it. I think that's my biggest one. My mom used to harp on me about this shit because I was horrible at it as a kid. But like, do what you say you're going to do. And that translated into like, okay, the league is Tuesday night. It starts at seven. Are you in or are you out? And if you're in and you don't show up, we will be upset with you for that, right? Like the rule in the backyard was you you didn't get any forfeits. You could not miss. You did not miss. If you missed, there was no sympathy for you. You didn't get to make up that game. You lost. Like, you know, there was yeah. no flexibility on it. There was a, a hardcoreness to it. If you're committing to this, do it. And I think I had to do the same. Like whether it was raining or snowing or whatever the weather was, I was still carrying wood up the street on my shoulder to fix those targets, to be ready for league. And if only three people showed up, out of 30, we threw. Didn't matter. And if you do that, you stick to it, you're going to create the foundation of something that you can make into something special, right? So just stick to it, man. And it doesn't have to be all at once. And it can be a blended approach of what your existing you know, day-to-day is. You don't have to disrupt absolutely every part of your life. There will come a point where you might have a decision like that. But when you're just getting going, just get going. Yeah, you know, it's amazing how many people that you see that 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 have great ideas and you know uh, you feel like they're motivated but just don't do it right? yeah. i mean i mean one of the big things that separate in my yeah. opinion entrepreneurs from others is they just do it do the so thing. i couldn't agree more just do the um, thing you know it, it's hard starting is hard you know a little, I, I speak a lot about momentum huge part of life is momentum see. you know it's like it, it's going to the gym Going to gym the first few times is hard, but once you're in the routine and you have momentum, it's not that difficult. You know what? I, I can agree and also disagree. Starting is hard, but the next thing is sticking to it. I think going to the gym once, a lot of people do. Going to the gym two or three times, maybe a lot of people do too. I don't think you get your, your routine until you're 10 times in. And At least. it's part of your routine because yeah. we are creatures of habit. It's part of your routine stick to it in those early days it's it's not just the first one the starting is hard but it's the starting and continue once you started for a set amount of time you know don't stop until it's part of your yeah your routine and your core how do you get around fear and, and what i mean is like fear of failure fear of like you know not knowing enough and fear of uh, you know the unknown and i, I mean I, i'll use you as an example i know when we first started your finance acumen in particular was like holy shit i don't know this stuff and you know there was I knew that how to cash out a bar till yeah <laughs> i was pretty good at that yeah you know, that was my 
end of day. End yeah. of day cash outs I could handle. But that was how, about it. So, A, how do you deal with the fear? And then how do you deal with, like, the uncomfortableness of of, of not knowing stuff that other people know, right? I mean, because I think that you've always been really confident in your ability to ask questions, as an example. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess maybe that's not something that everybody has. I don't know. I don't know how to turn that on in anyone other than to just say, do whatever you can to find a way to get over that. Like, if you, like just ask the questions. You got to ask the questions. Don't ever assume that you know things you don't know. And man, ask for help. People around you know stuff you don't know, whether it's friends, that's okay. family, or people you're working with. Yeah, man, it's totally okay. It's actually the norm. You know? But you got to be comfortable with yourself and, you know, be your authentic self, be self-aware. I mean, I'll come back to self-awareness over and over and over again, because self-awareness, in my in my opinion, is the key that unlocks potential. If you know what you're good at and you know what you're not good at, you can double down on those strengths. If you have no idea, you've just lost the key to potential. Yeah, it's important to reflect, to try and tear that ego down, man. Tear mm-hmm. that ego down and look at what you do. So, so going back to nature versus nurture, right? I mean, we've spoken about a lot of these things. For me, I, you know, I'm not discounting your upbringing as playing a huge role in in what's led you here, but you bleed a certain personality. You you have innate skills that I believe that you were born with. So I'm going to ask people to always put a percentage. You know, I'm always of the belief that it's nature nurture 80 20. Right. I believe nurture absolutely matters, but you know, I was never going to be, you'd say 80 is nature, right? DNA is 80%. And I'll I'll tell you why I say that, you know, I think that if you're born, like picture a tree, you know, you go up that trunk and you get to the first set of branches and you go, you know, right away. I'm like math brain versus, you know, art brain, whatever it might be. You go up that branch, you split up and you split up and you split up. But like at the end of the day, I believe that like, you're going to land up in a cluster of that tree. Right, you're gonna land up in, a, in one of a million different branches on that tree, but you're never gonna land up here on that tree. And by here, so people can hear, he's je- you're gesturing to the other to side the other of side. the tree. Yeah, the, the, other... the other side of that tree. Like yeah, you're yeah. gonna land up in that cluster on the right side in the top corner because you had a math brain. You you, you were born with some degree of self awareness. Right. Um. You know, you're not athletic. Right. Uh. You know, all those things. But like, yeah, nurture is gonna. And I believe in that cluster, there is the homeless drug addict. And there's the billionaire. So, the, I, so, so to, to, totally, yeah. totally that, that cluster still has all those things. So when people hear me say 20%, it's the outcome of that cluster that, that I talk mm. about is that 80. And I'm more than prepared to, to hear that I'm wrong. I just think that when, when I meet certain people that have that it factor, like, I just don't know if you can learn that. You saw me over the years at different stages. You know, there, there's a lot of learning and it was for sure, you know, and it was, uh, so I, I don't know if I, I, you I, many branches. I, I can't agree with that 80, yeah. 20%. I yeah. think I subscribe for my whole life. I've always subscribed that like experience is knowledge and that's what determines your growth, right? That's how you evolve on a daily basis is by being a part of things, learning, experiencing things. So, so for me, I think a whole lot of it is nurture. I think there's for sure some DNA in there. My parents are smart people. Sure, you know, but am I fortunate that I got, I guess, what what you would say, like, good genes, I guess? I don't Mm -hmm. know. It even feels weird to say that, you know, it's just, I wouldn't say that anybody can do anything. And I guess in that sense, I'm agreeing with you that you can't be whatever you want to be. You can't be 100% whatever you want to be. But but there is absolutely a whole lot of room for you to develop and push yourself in a direction. Totally agree. So don't focus on the thing that you're the worst at. I guess that's the move, Mm -hmm. right? But uh, if you try and develop those other skills, you can. I mean, you can develop other skills. You can evolve and, and you, you do on a daily basis. So 
I say it's the other way, 80-20 the other way. Okay, all right. I, li- I like the uh, the disagreement. That's why so that's that's you know. Maybe there's 10% of additional devil's advocate pushing that. Maybe it's really 70-30. <laughs> but I'm going to, no, 80-20, just, okay. just for the sake of. Okay, just to even it out at 50-50. Yeah. I get it. I get it completely. <laughs> so, I mean, w- where can people find you? If people want to see what you're up to and, and follow along in your journey, you know, where, where can they find you? I only really operate on Instagram. I don't really do Facebook uh, anymore. I feel like Facebook is a kind of toxic environment. So is Instagram, but but I am on there. What's your um, handle there? It's uh, Battlemat, B-A-T-L-M-A-T-T. You can find me on there. You'll see a lot of uh, story posts about basketball <laughs> and a lot of story posts about axe throwing. Yeah. <laughs> Raptors and axes. Raptors right? and axes, man. That's it. I'm all in on both. What do you want for your life? I mean, at the, you know, at the end of the day, and I know it's a big question, but you know, what, what do you hold sacred for you and, and and what do you want to see you know your journey look like i think like a lot of people the relationships that i've got in life are, are probably my most most important thing to me you know i'll take a second to point people in the direction of something that i was able to do a couple of years ago that i was pretty that i'm still pretty proud of which was uh, i was able to do a ted talk on community called the four simple truths of uh building a community you can find that on YouTube if you want to take a look. And and I delivered that in relation to, you know, the building blocks of battle and the community around axe throwing. So, you know, I think that speaks to a few things that we talked about today, but certainly does speak to the importance of you know relationships and, and human interaction. But uh, for me, man, I'm feeling pretty happy about where things are at. You know, we've got some big steps ahead of us for battle to take the next step forward. But uh, giant leap. The next, yeah, the next giant leap forward. And, and I'm excited to deliver some of that news over the next few months out into the, the axe throwing world. But um, life is good, man. I'm not wanting very much, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm at the point now where life work balance is, is evened out a little bit. The last few years have been all work all the time, which has been a great experience. But I wouldn't mind uh, settling down at some point becoming a family man but uh right now just at battle mat if you're (laughs) single and eligible oh god what have you done (laughs) you know i I don't think about it that much to be honest i guess i'm excited for where where it's at i'm i'm grateful for the journey you know right now is something i never you know five years ago would never have thought 10 years ago certainly not but uh i think i've been fortunate enough to be pretty optimistic about where i've been at throughout like like i've lived a pretty good life you know if that can keep going and i could stay healthy yeah how do you stay motivated i mean speaking on you know when you say go to the gym once go to the gym twice but what about a hundred times in a row well i'm not going to the gym right now so maybe i gotta figure that out (laughs) the motivation again for me it boils down to collaboration right like like i'm motivated because i get to work with really great people to do something that i believe in you know uh if it wasn't the people and you know this i wasn't always there was periods, lengthy periods while we've been on this ride where I was not motivated. You weren't as motivated. I was, sure. I was not as motivated. Fair. Yeah. And so figuring out what I needed to change and adjust was was a big part of that. And getting back to a place where I can enjoy working and on the things that I like to work on and have people on the team that can work on the things that I don't like to work on, but that they do like to work on. The joy is coming in every day to collaborate with people to do something cool, man. It's fucking cool. Well, Matt, thank you very much for sharing your story. It's one that I think is uh, is important. There's a ton of, of of lessons and inspiration that can be found within that journey. I personally, as your friend and as your business partner, can't wait to see what transpires over the next five years. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected. <laughs>